From Washington, I'm David Schultz, and this is Talking Tax. The U.S. tax code has undergone numerous tweaks and changes throughout the past few decades, but according to today's guest, nearly all of them have been in one particular direction to benefit the wealthiest Americans. James Steele's an investigative journalist with a lifetime of experience and a couple of Pulitzer Prizes to his name. He now reports for the Center for Public Integrity, and he teamed up with Bloomberg Tax for a deep dive into how the tax code actually got to where it is today. Steele says, if you want to look at where inequality in America comes from, look no further than the invention of the qualified dividend, the gutting of the estate tax, and generous incentives for reshoring income held abroad. Steele spoke with Bloomberg editor Bernie Cohn about why these policies came about and about why exactly the idea of supply-side tax policy just refuses to die. As far as I'm concerned, that's one of the great pivotal questions over the last almost half century. Uh, I mean, the concept has been disproven time and time again. Uh, Every time a big tax bill comes up, it's trotted out as the explanation as to why, even though we're cutting taxes and people won't be paying as much as they did, it's not important because this will generate so much economic activity uh, that those taxes will make up for, for the shortfall. Time and time again, this has been proven wrong. I guess at the heart of it is we as a society have very short memories. Uh, and also I think maybe in our field, uh, journalism, uh, we don't bring that up enough. Uh, sometimes when it's brought up, uh, we're labeled as partisan, but the fact of the matter is, I mean, the facts are very clear on this. Um, that's whole concept is what led to the, the famous Reagan tax cuts in 1981. There were major cuts, uh, from the top on down, especially at the top. But that wasn't something to worry about because uh, revenues generated from those uh, from economic activity with all this money pumping back into the society, the economy would offset them. didn't happen. And in fact, the uh, record budgets followed over the next eight years uh, in the Reagan administration, which posed all kinds of problems for his successor. So I don't really know other than uh, short memory how to account for this. The second part, though, is the the proponents of it. And I have to give them credit for this. They are extraordinary promoters and advocates of their point of view. And I would say the other side, uh, folks who believe that the tax cut maybe should be fairer and that people might at the top need to pay a little bit more, have never been able to come up with the right kinds of terminology uh, to offset some of those classic terms you see from the right, like the death tax and tax and spend, things of that sort. I think if if that other side ever does come up with one of those and it's successful, uh, there might be more uh, luck on the future the next time one of these tax bills comes around and everybody says it's going to be wonderful for the economy. You know, one of the more understated thoughts uh, that that you had in your piece that I really wanted to explore is the creation of qualified dividends. Yes. And I have to admit that you know my exposure to qualified dividends has been looking at that form or you know that line <laughs> on the 1040 yeah. and going right. okay qualified dividends what the heck is that what do they mean where do I actually find it on all of my and uh, all of my statements and just concentrating on trying to fill out the form right uh, but you take it to a whole nother level and really talking about it as a very understated but important factor in exacerbating. The, uh, the inequality and class divides. 
take us through how it is that that became such an aggravating factor, at least the way that the, uh, that the, that the qualified dividends thing was created in the first place? It's, it's a great question, uh, Bernie, because, and, and honestly, uh, I didn't pay as much attention to this as I probably should have when it seeped into the law, tax law. And it really wasn't until I began to do this story for, for the Center for Public Integrity and actually revising uh, the book Don Barlett and I did many years ago, America Went Wrong, The Crisis Deepens. It really wasn't until uh, those things came up that I started taking a look at this. And prior to qualified dividends, dividend income was taxed as ordinary income, the same as you earned as a salesman, a plumber, a corporate executive, whatever your high, high rate was, that's how your dividends were. But the argument uh, was made by uh, those seeking a tax cut, basically, that qualified dividends because of how long, it's a very complicated formula, I don't want to put everybody to sleep on this, but basically, the term got introduced in, in some proposed legislation on the basis that qualified dividends, well, these were, di- this was, these were dividends you'd held a longer period of time, and therefore they were in a slightly different category. Uh, but the bottom line to this was, it turned out to be an incredible tax cut, especially for people at the top. Now, every, everybody who had a qualified dividend got the tax cut. But I think, as most of us know, most taxable dividends, those not held in IRAs or 401k accounts, most taxable dividends are held overwhelmingly by folks at the top. I mean, people with money. And so this gave them, if you were paying at the time 35%, let's say, um, in, in ordinary income tax for your salary or your, your, as a CEO, whatever you were, suddenly with a qualified dividend, you had a 15% tax rate, a substantial, significant tax cut. And that has been worth billions and billions of dollars to largely upper income taxpayers ever since 2003, which is when this thing seeped into the tax code. I went back and looked at this and uh, it's surprising in retrospect how little coverage there was at the time uh, this thing was working its way into the tax code. And that's the thing with tax law. Uh, unless there's some hot button issue going on there within, within the discussion, uh, the overwhelming amount of tax legislation just seeps through. The lobbyists have their way. Uh, most people think they're too complicated for them to try to understand. So it's the most fertile field possible for lobbyists because there's almost no spotlight uh, shined on this. A lot of the specialized publications talked about it, but there was very, very little in the mainstream media. We talked earlier about sort of how sort of supply side economics and related tax policy just became this this thing that became entrenched um, where you does, didn't even necessarily hear an argument about it. It feels like a state tax is sort of the same way. And I wonder, you know, similar to the discussion we had earlier, how was it that the estate tax oh, became another one of those third rail things, regardless of party? Well, again, I, I take my hat off to the phrase makers who came up with the term death tax to describe the estate tax. I mean, the estate tax goes way back in this country, almost to the time of the passage of the income tax. I think it's 1916. And the whole idea behind the estate tax, and a lot of Republicans signed on to this. Many of them objected to the income tax. A lot of them thought 
it was a good way to prevent the growth and the uh, development of financial aristocracy in America. The U.S. has always been, from its very uh, origins, uh, conscious that it came, many of us came from a European societies which had a ruling aristocracies, and nobody liked those aristocracies. They represented privilege and, and mountains of wealth that couldn't be uh, penetrated. So the U.S., the idea, the estate tax, was to make sure that we didn't create that in this country. And over the years, uh, you'll hear arguments about how successful it was and this and that and the other thing. But all we know for sure is since 1980, it's been progressively lowered and now covers very, very few Americans. Uh, one of the statistics that amazed me, and I had not run this statistic until uh, I did this story, was that if you take uh, filings and the amount of money raised by the estate tax back in 1980, and you adjust it for inflation, here we are more than 40 years later, and it's essentially the same money. In other words, in 40 years, when there's been an incredible growth in wealth of people at the very top of the income scale in America, estate taxes are flat. By any standard imaginable, uh, that should have doubled or tripled or perhaps even quadrupled if you'd kept the system that was in existence in the 50s, 60s, and, and early 70s. Right. And the amounts keep uh, keep getting raised as far as the exemption, but yet it continues to be one of these issues where the imagery of the family farm, uh, you know, falling out of hands after the fifth generation comes up every time there's more discussion about it. Right, right. And, uh, of course, there's that famous quote from Gary Cohn in the, um, in the, I guess, the Trump White House. He said, only morons pay the estate tax because they figured out other ways to uh, get around it. Uh, so it's never been even foolproof, in, even in the days when the rate was higher. Uh, but at least it, it made an effort on it. It's the same argument you used to hear when there was a 70% tax rate on, on, on certain unearned income about how people had tax shelters. Well, the fact of the matter is a lot of people didn't have many tax shelters, and a lot of people did pay that rate. Speaking of end runs, you also talk quite a bit in the piece about, uh, you know, the efforts that uh, became so commonplace over the years for major corporations to be, you know, parking billions of dollars in income in foreign subsidiaries, whether it was flat out income, whether it was, you know, value of intellectual property, all these kinds of things. And you discuss the proposals that have come around to, you know, to recapture that. So devil's advocate uh, question, if, if I may, um, you obviously saw, you know, see and dissect certain flaws in the way that was done, but is that not better than simply allowing corporations to park all this money offshore untaxed? Well, it's, it's a good question, Bernie, and there's two aspects of this, uh, of the answer I want to deal with. Do you have the first part is the question whether the money should come back? And if so, what kind of a rate that you deal with for the benefit, let's say, of the economy? But the second part of the question is, if there's some conditions uh, attached to that money coming back, uh, do you enforce those conditions? Do you look at those conditions? And that's why uh, the whole movement to uh, allow a lot of the offshore money, the, the almost a trillion dollars that accumulated by back in the 2003, 2004, when the whole movement came by big international corporations that had all kinds of money parked offshore. When, when that movement arose, there was a huge amount of money offshore that couldn't come back or wouldn't come back without facing higher taxes in the U.S. Okay, 
So they, the companies formed a lobby. They wanted to bring it back, but they didn't want to pay the full U.S. corporate tax. Uh, they got Congress to agree to basically a, a 5% tax to bring that back. But two conditions were attached to it. It was with the understanding that the money would be invested in the U.S. and hopefully jobs would be created as a result of that. And there were specific things in it about that it shouldn't be used to significantly increase executive compensation. Well, eight years later, a Senate committee, investigative committee, looks at this whole thing. And that report is one of the most sophisticated reports you will ever see. I mean, people make fun of Congress from time to time about how it's spinning its wheels and this and that. But very often, some really, really significant reports come out of various committees. And this is one of them. And it showed, uh, after all that money came back, it was hundreds of millions of dollars. No jobs were created. And CEO pay for the companies involved soared. So in other words, the specific things that Congress attached to that weren't followed. And there was absolutely no follow-up by Congress. So that, that's why I say there's two aspects of this. You can argue whether or not the money should come back. Uh, maybe it's best to get it back even at a lower rate that will stimulate some things. But the fact that the money is, the money, like this is the case with so many taxes, then goes to a tiny sliver of the population. With the stock buybacks, it benefited shareholders. Uh, and who are the shareholders? The largest shareholders are overwhelmingly wealthy taxpayers. But the other part were the CEOs uh, who also profited from this. So I think you know, that's the problem with that situation. Uh, even if you accepted the money coming back, why wasn't there some oversight to make sure that it was invested properly in the U.S.? One thing that I guess could confine as a, you could define as a possible, shall we say, interruption in the momentum of most of the last 40 years that you do talk about is the Inflation Reduction Act. And the question that I had for you is, do you see that as more sort of temporary political movement or statement, or is the, or does this take momentum in tax policy possibly in, in a little bit different direction? That's a really good question. I think in the short term, uh, it probably doesn't I mean, after the first of this year, when the new Congress takes place, I don't see anything on taxes. I don't see anything significant on taxes under this new Congress, because obviously Congress is split. Uh, but a number of the people I've talked to who do a lot of polling on this, they think there's a shift. They think uh, there's a lot of support for a billionaire's tax. Now, whether you call it a billionaire's tax or you just put in a a couple of higher rates in the existing series of brackets that would deal in that level. Uh, they say there's significant support in the country across a lot of different classes for that. Uh, there's a lot of anger over, we just mentioned the CEO pay and, and how that's gotten so excessive and out of control. So they say based on their polling, they think there has been a shift and they think even the Democrats who normally would drive these things in the past, a lot of them are starting to pay more attention to that and to not be frightened and scared to suggest a tax increase. But I think we're going to have to wait till after this Congress and see if anything happens after that that, that changes that. The interesting thing that, uh, again, so much of this, I think, does get back to the media. I'll never forget riding in the car a few years ago and 
and something was being debated by the Senate Finance Committee, and there was a quote from the uh, radio journalist at the time, such Charles Senator such and such a said there's just not going to be any tax increases while he's chairman of the Senate Finance Committee. And I've often thought, what is, what's a carpenter or a salesman or a department store clerk or the person filling orders in an Amazon warehouse? If he hears that on the radio, he thinks, well, I don't want a tax increase. I'm, I'm certainly for that. Most of those tax increases being debated weren't going to affect them at all. They were tax potential tax increases at the upper end. But it's very hard to communicate that to the average person. That's why once you lower taxes, it becomes extremely difficult to raise them, even when you're raising them on a tiny number of people. Does this all explain why President Biden can talk till he's blue in the face about not raising taxes on anybody who makes less than $400,000 and yet no one seems to believe it? I think you're absolutely right. I, 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 the, 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 just the sheer lies that come out about taxes are absolutely appalling. And, uh, and every time it gets corrected, it's, it's just hard for people sometimes to accept that. But you're absolutely right. That was investigative reporter James Steele speaking with Bernie Cohn. And that's it for today's podcast. You can find up-to-the-minute news and latest tax and accounting developments at our website, news.bloombergtax.com. That website, once again, is news.bloombergtax.com. Today's Talking Tax is produced by myself, David Schultz. Rachel Daigle is our editor, and our executive producer is Josh Block. From Washington, I'm David Schultz. Thanks for listening. Have you ever thought to yourself, how is that legal? Why is that legal? Have you ever seen a big trial in the news and wondered, what's really happening there? Have you ever pondered the question, why are lawyers the way that they are? And how much money do they really make anyway? These are the things we live and breathe over at On the Merits, Bloomberg Law's weekly legal news podcast. On the Merits looks into the biggest stories playing out in the legal industry right now, and we feature the finest journalists covering the biggest legal stories from across the Bloomberg Law newsroom. You can hear it wherever fine podcasts are found. Thanks for listening.